Well, amen. I got to confess, I just about joined the choir on that one. I have no hope in my life apart from the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Uh, I, I'm not basing any hope on anything else, certainly not my, my own righteousness. So when you get to singing about the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, that's a song worth singing. Luke chapter 6, we're going to look at um, a really important uh, passage of Scripture this morning. They're all important, but, uh, but, but um, something begins to get crystal clear in Luke's gospel and that there is a great enemy of the gospel and uh, we're going to see what that is this morning. There are, many, there are many enemies, but one in particular keeps creeping up over and over and over again throughout the Gospel of Luke. And, and we're going to look at that, the Pharisees and Jesus, as this narrative continues and progresses in the Gospel of Luke. It just gets more and more uh, clear that they don't have any common ground. The Gospel of grace, by faith alone and grace alone and Christ alone, has no common ground with the religion of the Pharisees. And what I want to tell you this morning is that the religion of the Pharisees is alive and well in the world today. And up to this very moment and into eternity, the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ will never have any common ground with legalistic external religion. It didn't then, it doesn't now. And Jesus will make that very clear to the Pharisees and to us in Luke's account. Uh, one of the first things that I can remember doing as a little child was asking my dad to go out to our 77 Monte Carlo and roll the windows down for me so that when he was inside the house doing whatever he was doing, uh, taking care of things or cooking dinner, I could play um, uh, what I wanted to play because my heroes on television, when they were getting away, always went through the open window to get into the car. They were on television and they had a little song that started at the beginning of their show that was fairly popular when I was four, five, and six years old. And it went like this. Waylon Jennings sang, Just two good old boys, never meaning no harm, beats all you ever saw, been in trouble with the law since the day they were born. You take it from there. Anybody? No, no. Of course, it was the Dukes of Hazard, right? And Bo and Luke, when they were going to get in there, uh, car, they didn't have windows, and so that's what I always wanted to play. And so I, I was thinking through this fact is that Jesus is in trouble with their brand of law, the Pharisees. He's not in trouble with the actual law. He, he is the embodiment of the law. He's the word become flesh. But what we'll see is he's in trouble with them. However, a better way of looking at it is they're actually in, if you want to put it in these terms, they're actually in trouble with him. Uh, in Luke chapter 6, beginning in verse 1, it says, On a Sabbath, while he was going through the grain fields, his disciples plucked and ate some heads of grain, rubbing them in their hands. But some of the Pharisees said, Why are you doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath? And Jesus answered them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry, he and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and took and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priests? to eat and also gave it to those with him and he said to them the son of man is lord of the sabbath on another sabbath he entered the synagogue and was teaching and a man was there whose right hand was withered and the scribes and the pharisees watched him to see whether he would heal on the sabbath so that they might find a reason to accuse him but he knew their thoughts and he said to them, excuse me, he said to the man with the withered hand, come and stand here. And he rose and stood there. And Jesus said to them, I ask you, 
Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm? To save life or to destroy it? And after looking around at them all, he said to him, Stretch out your hand. And he did so, and his hand was restored. But they were filled with fury and disgust with one another what they might do to Jesus. We have two scenes. Both of them take place on a Sabbath day. And one scene, the Pharisees accuse Jesus and his disciples for doing what ought not to be done on the Sabbath. And on the second day, they do the very same thing. I want to read to you from John MacArthur's commentary on the Gospel of Luke. A little bit of information on the Pharisees and how they were, and particularly how it pertains to the Sabbath. The Pharisees, and here's the the great enemy, we'll just go on and say it up front, the great enemy to the gospel of grace is legalism. Legalism is the enemy that we're going to define this morning, we're going to discuss it this morning, we're going to see how it plays out when Jesus confronts it. And no legalists have been quite as legalistic as the Pharisees were, and they had all sorts of regulation and rules governing almost everything. Jesus will say elsewhere in the gospels that these men put heavy burdens on the shoulders of others, but they themselves would do nothing to help carry these burdens. And when I say the spirit of legalism is alive and well in America today and throughout the world, this is true. And it's the great enemy of the gospel of grace because what legalism does is it gives you a misunderstanding of sin, gives you a misunderstanding of righteousness, a misunderstanding of the need for salvation, a misunderstanding of death and sin, a misunderstanding of the righteousness of God, a misunderstanding of justification by faith, a misunderstanding of the death of Christ, and a misunderstanding of the grace of God. In short, it gives you a misunderstanding of everything. So so let me give you a few examples of some of the legalistic demands that the Pharisees placed on people, and no, uh, uh, no subject got more uh, attention from the Pharisees than the Sabbath day itself. They said, the Pharisees, for example, on the Sabbath, traveling more than 3,000 feet from home was forbidden. But if one had placed food at the 3,000 foot point before the Sabbath, that point would then be considered a home since there was food there and allow another 3,000 feet of travel from there. Similarly, a piece of wood or a rope placed across the end of a narrow street or alley constituted a doorway. That could then be considered the front of one's house and permit the 3,000 feet of travel to begin there. There were also regulations about carrying items. Something lifted up in a public place could only be set down in a private place and vice versa. An object tossed into the air could be caught with the same hand, but it was caught with the other hand, it would be a Sabbath violation. If a person had reached out to pick up food when the Sabbath began, the food had to be dropped to bring the arm back while holding the food food would be carrying a burden on the Sabbath. It was forbidden to carry anything heavier than a dried fig. A tailor could not carry his needle, a scribe his pen, or a student his, his books. Now this is just one page of dozens and dozens and dozens and dozens and dozens of pages. Now let me ask you a quick question. If you're living in those days and those were all the regulations... Would you begin to look forward to the Sabbath, or would you begin to dread the Sabbath? Would you begin to look forward with great anticipation? Here's the day we get to lay everything aside and worship the Lord. Or would you begin to think, oh no, how many more days until the Sabbath comes? Here's what Jesus will say. He has this wonderful way of cutting through everything and getting to the bottom line. He says, man was not made for the Sabbath, 
Sabbath was made for man. And in those days, the Pharisees had put so many rules and rigid regulations that the people, really it was no longer a day of rest. In fact, it was the most restless day of the week. And Jesus comes and begins to do things and confront the issue head on. Go with me, keep, keep, keep your spot there in Luke 6, and go with me to Matthew chapter 7. Matthew chapter 7, look at a couple of verses there. Matthew chapter 7, beginning in verse number 13. We're going to read two, two small paragraphs that Jesus spoke. And though they're small in length, they are uh, weighty with, with meaning and deserve your great attention and reflection and consideration this morning. Jesus says in Matthew 7, verse 13, Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many, for the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. So Jesus says that the way to life is, is narrow. It's a narrow way. And what, what he means is that it's just, it's just a, well, he says it best, it's a narrow way. And, and, and to enter by it, um, I think the scripture will say there's, there's uh, we'll attest to the fact there's sort of two uh, ditches on either side of the narrow way. And they seem to be opposites, but in the end their result is the same. They lead to destruction. One is what we're talking about, legalism. We're going to talk about it in great detail this morning. The other is what we might call misunderstanding of sinful license. One is saying, here's what you have to do in order to be saved. The other says, well, you can do whatever you want to do and still be saved. And so they still seem like opposites, but there are two ditches on the side of... Now, let me just ask you this, and here's a way that you can understand which one you're more susceptible to. When it was the first day of school in class and the teacher went over all the rules, what were you saying in your mind? Okay, I've got to abide by this. Or were you saying in your mind, how far can I stretch this? All right, one or the other. I was a rule, rule follower. Did you know that? I just to the... To the, to the to the nth degree, if the teacher said, you've got to raise your hand before you speak, I would raise my hand before I spoke. If the teacher said that you need to have the pen and the paper out on your desk before class starts, I would get there 10 minutes early. Go on and put them out. Now, I had some other classmates. They weren't that way. If, if the rule was such and such, they would say, how far can I stretch it until it breaks? Because that's just how we're wired on the inside. One of those two ways. You remember the parable of the prodigal son? How many sons are there? Two. What was one? A rule follower to the nth degree. What was the second one? How far can I stretch these rules? In fact, I don't even want to be under these rules anymore. Now, here's the question. Which of them was lost? Answer, they both were. One stayed physically close to his father, keeping all the rules, but had no joy in his life. The other squandered everything he had and went off and lived in a, in a, in a far country. You see, they're both lost, but they come at it from different ways. We'll look at the parable of the prodigal son in a few chapters over in Luke 15, so we'll go in that greater detail at that time. Now, here's, here's, the, here's the problem. is A lot of people are hardwired to works-based salvation. We had our daddy-daughter date night last night and had a wonderful time. Had that room full of those sweet, precious girls. And for a moment, I took the, took, took, took the dads and we went to another room and I was just giving some encouragements to them and to, and to myself from the Bible about raising these precious girls. And one of the things we talked about is, uh, is I like uh, to listen on occasion and read the books by Dr. James Dobson. And he says this, there is a question that every little boy in the world asks and there's a question that every little girl in the world asks. And you know what? It's not the same question. Did you know boys and girls are different? Now, 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 we live in this crazy culture that wants to suggest that they're basically the same. That's just not true. 
I can tell you, last night, uh, we sat down to a nice, quiet, peaceful dinner. Everyone was, all the girls were dressed so pretty. 23 girls in that room. Let me ask you this. If it had been 23 boys in the room, would the room have been different? (laughs) Here's how you knew there was a room full of girls in that room last night. Not a single glass got broken. If there were all boys in that room, every glass in the place would have been. We wouldn't have been able to sit there. We wouldn't have been able to talk. They'd have been running up. Anyway, here's the question that most boys, if not all boys, in one way, shape, or form are asking in their hearts. And I'd go on and say it's not just boys. It's all us men. Here's the question on the heart. Do I have what it takes? Do I have what it takes? That's why when you watch sports, for, for, for example, and the team wins the Super Bowl, have you watched those men? They celebrate to, uh, like they've never celebrated. Confetti begins. These men, these grown men, these huge athletes crying like babies. Why? Because they said, I had what it takes. I was able to get it done. And, 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 and wives, you just know that's the, that's the question your husband's asking all the time. When he goes to work, do I have what it takes? Do I have what it takes? Do I have what it takes? That's not the question. That's not the question that most women ask on their hearts. Most women and we talked about this with the little girls last night. Most, most, most little girls are asking the question, it's, am I lovely? Am I lovely? And I spent most of the last night talking about how dads can help answer that, that, that question. That's not our major point for tonight. But I just want you to think about those questions. Do I have what it takes? Am I lovely? And then we'll apply it to you begin to see how dangerous legalism is. Because legalism will tell a man, you have what it takes if. And here's your checkbox. And then it'll come along to, 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 to the ladies, and the ladies' question is, is am I lovely? And the answer will be, if you do this and fix this and change that and do this and fix this and change that and make sure to do this and this, that, or the other. Now, here's the reality, spiritually speaking. Here's why legalism is dangerous. Spiritually speaking, let's answer those questions. Do I have what it takes? Spiritually speaking, you know what the Bible says? Absolutely no. You don't have what it takes. Spiritually speaking, am I lovely? Spiritually speaking, no. Dead in trespasses and sins. Ungodly, unrighteous. We don't have what it takes, and we're not able to get there. That's what the law is for, by the way, is to answer the question in the negative so that we could go in pursuit of the positive. That's the purpose of the law, is to show you that you need to be saved. So when the Pharisees come along, that God's purpose for the law is to show us we need salvation somewhere outside of ourselves, and the Pharisees come along and twist and pervert the law into a means of salvation, well, you've short-circuited the work of God and His purpose for the law. So let's go back now to Luke chapter 6. And you look with me here, these two scenes. We'll take them one at a time. They're traveling on a Sabbath. And it says, while he was going through grain fields, his disciples plucked and ate some heads of grain, rubbing them in their hands. So, so just real fast, without going into great detail, according to the Pharisees, the walking's against the law, the plucking's against the, wall, the law, the rubbing together's against the law, and the eating's against the law. I mean, they've, they've made four just outright, overt, public uh, breaking of the law. Again, please hear me. Not God's law, but the Pharisees' law. Because what the Pharisees came along and did is, is they wrote all these other additional laws to tack on to the, to, the, uh, to the Scripture. Now notice what it says. Some of the Pharisees said, Now, no, 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 you, you 
can get to the heart of somebody's uh, heart, <laughs> that's not too redundant of a way to say it, by the questions that they ask. Look at their questions. Just read a little phrase at a time. Why are you? You know what a legalist is always looking at? You. A legalist never looks at themselves. A legalist never says, what's God doing in my life? They, they don't have an internal life with God. All they have is the external, and they've got to keep up the external shell. They're dead on the inside, and so, uh, so, so they don't have to deal with that reality. They're going to focus on you and put you under a microscope and put you, put you, put you in the spotlight and put you on trial, so to speak. So, so look at this question. Why are you, first attribute of a legalist is they will emphasize, critique, question, and criticize other people. You remember what Jesus said? Why do you look at the speck that's in your brother's eye? You don't notice the log that's in your own eye. First, remove the log that's in your own eye. Then you can see clearly to remove the speck that's in your brother's eye. And then second, keep following the question, why are you doing? They will always emphasize external behavior. Why are you doing that? Why are you doing that? Why are you doing that? Sounds like my children. Why are you doing that? And then, keep following the question, why are you doing what is not lawful? Not lawful according to who? According to them. See, the trap that the legalist spins is they set the standard and then judge you by the standard that they set. Isn't that crazy? And it can happen over and over and over again. Hey, hey, if we're not careful, that can happen in a setting like this. Start giving you all these external behaviors that you've got to modify your life in order to fit in. And then if you're not careful, you do all the modifying of external behavior and you know, have, have no inward reality. Matthew 7, he says this. Couple verses from what we just read. On that day, many will come to me saying, Lord, Lord. And he'll say, Depart from me, I never knew you. And if you'll read those verses carefully, you know what you'll find? You go back, Matthew 7, 21, 22, and 23. When they come to the Lord, they begin to say all the things that they have done. Did we not do many mighty works in your name? Well, the question has to be who called them mighty works? You or him? Did, did, did we not cast out demons in your name? Did we not do uh, so many things in your name? Now, just here's, here's how we have to check ourselves. If in your anticipation of the judgment, when you get there and stand before the Lord, if you think that you're going to come to him and your justification is on the basis of all the things that you have done, you need to take a time out right now and say, that's not uh, scriptural. I'll tell you this, if you're going to come to Jesus with anything other than Praise God Almighty. Thank you for saving me. That's what we just sang, right? Thank you for Jesus, what you have done for your death, your burial, your righteousness. For by grace we are saved through faith. It's the gift of God, not by works. So you just think about it. Just take a moment. Say, oh, you're being too dramatic. You need to think seriously about serious things. When you face the Lord on the day of judgment, what are you really basing your hope on? What you're doing? What he's done. The Pharisees are all about what they've done. Why are you doing what's not lawful to do on the Sabbath? The response, you'll notice this. What does Jesus use in response? He uses the Scripture. And these guys are so-called experts in the Scripture, and he just points out, here's what the Scripture says, and he goes back to, to, the, to, to King David when he was on the run from Saul and his men, his mighty band of men, and they were uh, uh, went, to the, went to the place and took the showbread and ate in the the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for due for the priests. And he said to them, the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. The best way always to deal with 
legalists or legalistic tendencies is by way of the Scripture. Always by way of the Scripture. You have to allow the Bible to teach, teach you, speak to you, instruct you, correct you, encourage you more than anything, more than anything else. It's by grace we are saved through faith. It's, it's not by works. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. A legalist always thinks he can do better than the Holy Spirit. But let's not miss the clear aim of this scene is a statement that Jesus makes. The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Now here's going to be our pattern with the Pharisees from here on out. They're going to confront Jesus. He's going to answer them. He's going to challenge them. And they will have no response. That's going to happen over and over and over. You notice, look at the scene. When Jesus gave them a response, what did they say back to him? Absolutely nothing. They just tucked away and went back in their little discussion group and said, how are we going to get them next time? And that leads us to our, to our next scene. But before we move on to this, I just want to say this again. They confront Jesus. He answers them and challenges them. They have no response. This will continue through the Gospels, until these same Pharisees and scribes play an integral part in crucifying him. And even then, guess what? Jesus is going to have quite a response. Because the Bible is going to say, on the third day, he rose again. He always has the last word. He always will have the last word. That, that leads us to the second scene. On the, another Sabbath. So they, he'd handled the first scene of the Sabbath. They wanted to make this big deal out of eating a few pieces of grain. Now, 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 remember our context, where we've been. Jesus has healed a leper. He's healed a paralyzed man. Matthew's life's been turned upside down. He's following Jesus. And their emphasis is on, did I just, did I just see your disciples picking some grain in, in, in the fields? Now, here's always what's also true of a legalist. What's always true of a legalist is they always emphasize these things that all really shouldn't even be emphasized. They always want to pick an argument. Yeah, but... And they're going to do it again, and Jesus is going to be ready for them again. Let's read the second scene. And on another Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And a man was there whose right hand was withered. So it's the Sabbath, he's in the synagogue, he's teaching, and the Pharisees, uh, scribes and Pharisees, watched him to see whether he would heal on the Sabbath. You want another characteristic of a legalist? They come to a worship service not to learn, not to be teachable, uh, not to have the Word of God instruct them, but they just come to watch and find something to criticize. Now, uh, prayerfully, when we conclude our worship service and, and you leave, I don't know of anyone who's ever come to me and said, here's what you, you criticize. You, you, you always want to say, what's the word, word of the Lord for me and my life today? They're not interested in hearing the message. They're not interested in learning. They were there for one purpose, to find something to argue about. And here again, we see one of the great tragedies of legalism is that people end up uncared for. Uh, Jesus is teaching, and they're just watching him, and then there's somebody else in the room, and the Bible says that he has a withered hand. Uh, that Greek phrase uh, means that the, the, the muscles have atrophied in the arm, and so the arm can't really be used. And the Bible specifically says it's his right hand. It's a working hand. You know, it's, it's probably more than likely in that culture how he had earned his, his, his living. 
and uh, for whatever means it happened, he, he, he's no longer able to use the hand. And there's somebody there who's got, who's got a serious physical need, and the Pharisees never see him. That's also what happens because of legalism is the love of many grows cold. Jesus, it says, they're watching to see whether he would heal on the Sabbath. Now, they had said you can't heal on the Sabbath. That's too much like work. So that they might find a reason to accuse him. Now, let me just give you a shortcut principle on this. If somebody's looking for something to accuse you of, eventually they're going to find it. (laughs) If somebody's looking for some reason to criticize you, eventually they're going to find a reason to do so. It says, but he knew their thoughts. That's sobering. Do you know the Lord Jesus knows your thoughts? Now, the issue with external religion is uh, we can hide it from everybody else. And you might be able to pull that off. You, you might be sitting here for all intents and purposes. Everyone thinks that uh, this is true of your life or you're a devoted follower of the Lord Jesus. But even you know, apart from the external, that's not really true. I, I, don't, I don't really love him. I don't really follow him. He says, but he knew their thoughts. And he said to the man with the withered hand, come and stand here. You see, Jesus' emphasis is always on people. And he rose and stood there. And Jesus said to them, I ask you. Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm? To save life or to destroy it? And then notice, he gives them time to respond. He's not backing down from the debate. Jesus isn't running from the discussion. He said, open floor. I'm asking you. And notice what it says. He says, after looking around at them. That means he let his eyes go to each and every one of them. Probably a little awkward in the room at the time, don't you think? Their hostility is palpable. And he says, okay, which is, which is lawful. He uses their word. <laughs> I ask you. Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm? You know, a lot of people will criticize somebody behind the scenes, but then when given the opportunity to do so in public, they won't say anything. And here's just a simple, healthy Bible principle. Don't say anything about somebody in private that you're not willing to say to their face and to to them. But you can just feel, feel how it's gone for these Pharisees and scribes, right? I mean, they've gotten in their rooms and they've gotten their books out and they've, gotten, and they've just been complaining and complaining and complaining. And they said, we'll go and, 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 and hear, notice, Jesus confronts this head on. Their purpose was, what was it? To see if he would heal on the Sabbath. He's just said, I'm about to heal on the Sabbath. Who's got a problem with it? Is it lawful to do good or to do harm? To save life or to destroy it? So, so can you see the guys? They're like looking around. Are you going to say something? I'm not going to say something. Are you going to say something? Well, I'm not going to say something. Are you going to... You know what? I bet when they left from there and got behind closed doors, they all wanted to say something. He said, he looked at them all. He said to him, stretch out your hand. And he did so. And his hand was restored. That's what the Lord's about, restoring life. His hand's restored. That means his life's restored. He can, he can go on back to work, so to speak. He can, he can, he can provide again. He's, he's made whole again. And you would think now, right? You would think when that happens, that even the most hard-hearted Pharisee among them would say, wow, that's an amazing act of God. But I want you to see how hard-hearted the legalist gets. When the man's hand is restored, it says that they were filled with fury. And discuss with one another 
what they might do to Jesus. What they might do to Jesus. These two incidents bring out the stark contrast between Jesus and the Jewish religious leaders. It's the contrast between the representative of God's truth and the representatives of false religion, between divine truth and human tradition, between profound knowledge and madness, between goodness and wickedness, between compassion and cruelty, between open honesty and hidden deception, between divine power and human impotence, between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of Satan. They would have rather won the argument than for the man to go home healed, restored, and helped. Go with me to Titus chapter 2, verse 11. We looked at these verses not too many weeks back, but it's one of my favorite paragraphs in all the Scripture. You remember when we said you always want the Bible to speak to you and teach you and train you and uh, encourage you or convict you? This is a wonderful passage of Scripture that does that. Titus chapter 2, verse 11. says, For the grace of God has appeared. Amen to this. The grace of God has appeared. Now question, what's the grace of God done now that it has appeared? Number one, bringing salvation for all people. What Paul means there is there's an opportunity. Whosoever will may come. It's an open invitation. We don't give the, open to, uh, the invitation of salvation to some people. We give the open invitation of salvation to all people. That's what the grace of God has done. It's appeared. First of all, it's brought salvation for all people. And you notice a, what's the punctuation mark at the end of verse 11? It's a comma, right? I was sharing on Wednesday night about this. Commas are really, really important. I read a story about 100 years ago. A very wealthy lady was in Europe shopping and she found a piece of jewelry that she wanted. And so she wired her husband back in the States and said, found a piece of jewelry, $75,000. Can I get it? He wired back. Here was his message. No, comma, price is too high. However, when the message was wired and transferred to her, they left the comma out. So here's what the message said. No, price is too high. <laughs> co- co- commas are important, right? So you see at the end of verse 12, there is a comma. And I want to, to, to tell you the comma is really, really important. This is a death blow to legalism. That's how important this comma is. The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, comma, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. There's another comma, and that's also very important, the rest of those verses. But I want to hold here for one moment. What trains you to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-right, godly, and upright lives in the present age? What trains you to do that? What's the subject? The grace of God. Here's the problem with legalism, is it wants you to get verse 13, excuse me, verse 12, without verse 11. And I just want to tell you, it's not ever going to happen. It's not ever going to happen. This is the gospel in full, this paragraph. And what does it start with? The grace of God. Do I have what it takes? No. But the grace of God has come. Spiritually speaking, am I lovely? No. In fact, your, your, your righteousness is as filthy rags unto the Lord. But the grace of God has appeared. And, and, and the tragedy of legalism is 
it diminishes how wonderful this first verse is. When we have, realize we have no hope apart from Christ, the hope that we have in Christ becomes what's most beautiful and glorious in our lives. Now, a legalist wants to come along again and to train you to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. That's what a legalist, the legalists do want you to do that. But why do they want you to do that? And how do they want you to do that? Ultimately, our destructive ends, and I'll say this as clear as I know how, that end in hell. When you try to base your salvation on what you do, how hard I can train myself to renounce ungodliness. And if you'll peel the legalistic paper back a little bit, that training isn't very successful. <laughs> you don't really renounce those things successfully. But when you are liberated by the grace of God, when you see Jesus for who He is, that's how you overcome sin. Whatever sin issue is in your life, anger, jealousy, pornography, bitterness, you know how you overcome it? Not by trying to train yourself to renounce it, but the grace of God. The grace of God becomes better. What you have in Christ becomes better. Same, same, thing, uh, same thing that I'll use this illustration in the past, but I'll use it again. One Christmas that we were home when we lived in Memphis, Tennessee, Julie and I uh, had to split, split up the Christmas day, spend the morning with her mom and dad, and then, and then the evening with my mom. And uh, her mom had provided this awesome lunch. And it was so good, and we filled up, and we ate. And then a couple hours later, we went to my mom's house, and she had made dinner. But I had just eaten. And, and, and here's all my favorites. My mom had made my favorites, and I didn't have any appetite left over. Here's the illustration. When you're full of the grace of God, you don't have appetite left over for sin. You're already satisfied. You, how do you combat sin? A superior satisfaction. Do you see it over and over and over? Every point we can make, do you see how legalism undermines it time and time and time and time again. Here's the good news. You know who wrote Titus chapter 2, verses 11 and 12? A liberated former legalist named Saul. The grace of God had appeared to him and had transformed his life. How do you view your obedience unto the Lord? Here's a legalist check. You ready for it? This what I have to do? Or is it what I get to do? Let me give you a few things that Jesus told us to do. And you, you, in your own heart and mind and soul, say, do I view this as something I have to do or something I get to do? Go into all the world and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything that I've commanded you. That's a great commission. Does that rest on you as something that I have to do or something that I, something that I get to do? You've heard that it was said to those of old, you shall love your enemies, or excuse me, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemies. But I say to you, you will love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. You feel like that's something you have to do or something in light of the grace of God that you get to do. When it comes to your salvation, what do you believe justifies you? How you've lived in comparison with others or what Christ has done on your behalf? Again, in Matthew 7, when you read of those who will come at the judgment, thinking that they're on their way to heaven. And Jesus will say, depart from me, I never knew you. You'll see that what they emphasize is what they have done. It's a list of all the things that they have done. Here's what the Lord would have us say. It's by grace we've been saved through faith. It's the gift of God, not by works, 
so that none of us can boast. I ask you, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm? To save life or to destroy it? Jesus wants to do you good. Jesus' desire is to save your life. The great danger of legalism is it blinds the one who needs to be saved from the one who saves. I want us to stand together. We'll pray together. Have our time of invitation this morning. It would be an appropriate use of our invitation for you to um, take inventory of your life and see if there are any legalistic tendencies in your heart and in your mind. Well, I hope we've seen how slippery and how sneakily legalism can creep in to our faith. And so I'm going to invite you to bow your heads, and I'm just going to say a few things that were true of the legalists in Jesus' day. And as I say them, you allow the Lord to search your heart and know you. See if there be any wicked way in us. Legalists do not really deeply care about people. A legalist prefers to win an argument over helping a person. Legalists emphasize their traditions more than they emphasize the Scripture. Legalists look for ways to accuse or criticize other people. Legalists emphasize external behavior and not internal reality. Legalists will say a lot of things about people behind closed doors that they won't say to someone's face. Father, I pray that you would guard us by your grace from the overwhelming burden of legalism. Father, I pray if there's anyone here this morning that they've just been about been crushed under the weight of legalistic expectations, that you would liberate them by the gospel of grace. That yes, yes, absolutely, to the glory of God, we renounce ungodly ways. We want to live self-controlled, upright lives in the present age. But we do this in response to grace and not in response to legalistic requirements. Father, help us to understand an eternal difference is literally made between those two lives. Father, lead our time. We pray that it's the grace of God that rains down upon us, that we have a Savior who will stand in the face of legalists and say, I have come to save. I have come to do good. And that his emphasis is on people Helping people, restoring people, liberating people. 
He's come to preach good news to the poor and to set at liberty the captives. We give you glory and honor and praise that our hope is not on ourselves. It's in the grace of God made manifest in the Lord Jesus Christ. We worship you for this in Jesus' name. Amen.